Turn your Bible to Acts chapter 1. Going to catch us up real quick, and then we'll very quickly be in Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 1, we have the physician Luke telling us that he's writing a second account. The second account, the first account was about Jesus. That was the gospel. This second account is about the church, the church on the move. He tells them that they are to wait for the arrival of the Spirit. They're to stay in Jerusalem until the gift that he has promised. And he tells them in verse 8, our theme verse for the Acts of the Apostles, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. I, I told you that we'll go through and outline the book based on that verse. We'll begin the gospel in these early chapters like tonight in Jerusalem. Then we'll go to Judea. Then we'll go to Samaria. We'll end in Rome at the uttermost part of the earth. Next thing we have in Acts is the ascension. And they watch. And I told you the ascension happens only in Luke books. Luke and in Acts, it's alluded to in John, but really only found it taught clearly in books written by Luke. But Jesus ascends to heaven after 40 days on earth. Then they replace uh, the apostle Judas with Matthias. And then in chapter 2, the thing that they had been waiting for, the day of Pentecost comes, the Spirit falls the pilgrims from all over the diaspora are gathered there in Jerusalem. In fact, in chapter 2, he gives us all of those names of all those nations right there beginning in, chapter, in verse 9 of chapter 2. It's that passage you hope you don't get during the Bible reading with all those names of all those countries. But the point is to say that Jews were in Jerusalem for the Feast of Weeks from all over the Roman Empire. And while they are there, they hear the mighty rushing pneuma, the wind, which is a spirit. They see the tongues of fire on the apostles and the apostles preach. And the folk from all those various nations hear the gospel in their own language. And they say, these are all Galileans. How is it that I'm hearing the gospel in my own tongue? Well, they think that they're drunk, and Peter says, oh, it's 9 o'clock in the morning, they're not drunk. And then beginning there in verse 17, he explains that what is happening has been spoken through the prophet, that they should not be surprised. And then I gave you six things. I'm going to give them again to you very quickly. And my argument is this, that before a gospel is ever written, we find the core of gospel theology, apostles' theology, in the early sermon in Acts. You see, a gospel's not been penned yet when Peter stands up to preach at Pentecost. So what we have here, the men, especially Peter, in these early chapters who had been with Jesus for three years, they had seen him crucified, they had seen him resurrected, they had seen him ascended to the right hand of the Father, they saw him enveloped in the crowd, and right there at the moment of the passion of Jesus, 40 days after the resurrection, then just a little after that, these are the first sermons when they had the full story of Jesus. So it is in these sermons in Acts 
that you should find the core of your theology. For this is the prince of the apostles, Peter, preaching to you after he's just seen Jesus ascend and he's had the spirit fall down upon him. So here's the core of what the apostles thought and taught found in these early sermons and acts. The first word was fulfillment, fulfillment. And the event surrounding the person of Jesus, God was fulfilling the ancient scriptures. In the events surrounding the person of Jesus, God was fulfilling the ancient scriptures. What Peter is saying is this. What's happening in the story of Jesus and in the church is nothing new. This is what Isaiah has spoken about. This is what the psalmist has sung about. These were what Moses has written about. That in the events surrounding Jesus, God is fulfilling the ancient Jewish scriptures. The second word was deliverance. That the crucifixion of Jesus was ordained by God. It was a mighty act of conquest and deliverance for his people confirmed in the resurrection. That the crucifixion of Jesus did not catch God by surprise. It is foreordained by God. It is God's plan, this crucifixion. In fact, it is in this crucifixion that God is at work. The message of Peter in these sermons is this, in the person of Jesus, especially in his crucifixion and resurrection, God is at work for our liberation, our salvation. The third word was exaltation. This same Jesus that we've seen crucified, we've seen witnessed him as being resurrected, he has been exalted, is now seated as Lord in Christ at the right hand of God. So, exaltation. The fourth word is spirit. That Jesus has poured forth God's spirit upon his people. That's when he's speaking there in verse 17. It should be said in the last days, God says, I will pour forth my spirit upon humankind. Jesus has poured forth the spirit. The fifth word was vindication. Vindication. This same Jesus, we've manifested to the world again in a second advent, and he would judge the living and the dead. That there'll be a second advent, a second coming of this Jesus, just like you saw him ascend, said the divine beings. You will see him descend or come again. He'll be vindicated this time as a mighty judge of the earth. And the last word is repent. When they hear Peter preaching with all this passion, the kind of passion you would have if you'd seen Jesus crucified and resurrected, you'd seen him ascended to the right hand of God, you'd had the Holy Spirit fall down upon you, and you're preaching about the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, the people say, what must we do to be saved? How can we have a part in the kingdom of God? And the message comes in this sermon. Uh, and as he preaches, look at verse 38 of chapter 2. And Peter said to them, repent, let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the sixth message is repent, to participate in the saving work of God through Jesus Christ, to be included amongst God's people, one must turn from sin, believe in the living Lord, confess him, and be baptized in his name. Repent, be baptized, accept the message of Jesus. Well, where we left off last time, 
Peter had really good luck with his preaching on that occasion. In fact, we learned that 3,000 were baptized on that occasion of this sermon. 3,000 were baptized. Well, let's pick up in our text. Look at verse 41. So then, those who had received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And what did they do, this people, this church? They continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What is the apostles' teaching? The six things I just gave you, that's what they studied. That's what they taught. That's what they believed. That's what the apostles preached. And to fellowship, that word means, uh, it's a koinonia, it means sharing. They shared and fellowshiped, shared with each other. And the next thing is they broke bread. That's code language for what? The Lord's Supper. They celebrated the Lord's Supper. And they also prayed. There's four things the early church did. It closes out verses 43 through 47. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many signs and wonders were taking place to the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions. They were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together, gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding their number day by day, those who were being saved. So we find out at the end of Acts, and there's some more allusions to this in Acts, that they were very generous, they were giving, they sold property, they gave it, and it was a voluntary thing. And in fact, the fact that Barnabas is praised for doing it means it didn't happen with everybody all the time. But I do want you to see they had open hearts and open wallets to those who had a need. Chapter 3, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour that would be 3 p.m an hour of prayer and a certain man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple which is called beautiful in order to beg alms of those who are entering the temple now imagine, lame from his mother's womb, the man had never, ever walked. It wasn't that he had bad days when he couldn't walk and good days when he could walk. He had never walked. Never. Not a step, never run, never danced, nothing. And can you imagine every day he was set outside in the Gentile court and every day, he was sort of like a, a broken record. Alms, alms, alms for the poor. Alms, alms, alms for the poor. Every day, all day. And worse yet, being lame, he was not even permitted by the law of Moses to go into the temple outside of which he begged. He wasn't even allowed to go in and worship God because... He was lame. 
And there he stood begging every single day at the gate, which is called Beautiful. We do not have any extra biblical allusions or writings to this gate called Beautiful, so I can't tell you any more about it other than that's what is called here in Acts. So Peter and John. Now, interestingly enough, now you remember back I told you that when we had the relisting, go back to Acts chapter 1 and verse 13. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 13, we have a listing of the disciples, but the list switch. In the, first, in the gospel of Luke, it's Peter and the next disciple, got to be his brother, right? Peter and Andrew. But by the Acts of the Apostles, he lists them as Peter and John. Peter and John. Now, why this switch from Peter and his brother Andrew that now Andrew has been, I don't want to say demoted, but he's moved to the fourth spot, Peter and John? Well, because in the stories in this book, who are the two disciples that are going to be most prominent and always be together? Peter and John. So back over to chapter 3. So he prepared you by listing Peter and John together in chapter 1. He prepared you for the stories in Acts where Peter and John become prominent. But now Peter and John, 3-1, were going up. So verse 3. He saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, and he began to beg, asking to receive alms. And Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze upon him and said, look at us. Now, who's doing the talking there? Peter. Whenever Peter and John are together, it is usually Peter who's doing the speaking and the acting. And John plays a supportive role in the background. Doesn't mean he's any less, obviously, such a, a prince of apostles. But when Peter and John are together... When Peter and anybody are together, Peter's probably going to be doing, doing the talking. You understand that was his gift, I guess, and God had called him to be so. So they say, fix your gaze. He fixes his gaze upon them, and the man imagines, look at verse 5. He began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Finally, somebody had stopped. You know, he was there every day, and someone might give one day and not give for a long time. And he's used to people not paying him any attention like any beggar is. I mean, if you hit one in a hundred, you're doing pretty good. But they said, look at us. Well, no one says that. Everybody tries to look the other way when they go by a beggar. But they said to the beggar, look at us. He fixes his gaze upon their eyes, and he imagines for a moment he's going to get a gift. And Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, a Nazarene, walk. Wow. He was hoping for a few pennies, for some bread. His life was about to change, for the lame man was about to come in contact with the one who had the power to make the lame leap. I don't have money, but what I do have I give to you. 
in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene wall. And Peter reaches down and grabs him by the right hand, verse 7. He raised him up. There's no debating here. And immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, I love the word leap. He didn't just walk. He's leaping. Isaiah 35, 6. In the day of the Messiah, the lame will leap like a deer. When the Messiah is there, when the, when the Messiah is present, one of the signs will be the lame will leap like a deer. It reminds me of John the Baptist sends the messengers to Jesus. John the Baptist is in the dungeon, and he sends the messengers to Jesus. I mean, he had condemned Herodias for her sin, and she wanted to have his head on the platter. He's down in the dungeon waiting to have his head on the platter, and he knows it's not going to go well for him. He has been a moral prophet to the powers that be, and he's in a lot of trouble for speaking the truth. You remember, he sends the messengers, John the Baptist does, to Jesus, and they ask the question, are you really the Messiah, or do we need to start looking for somebody else? You know, uh, this is the John the Baptist who stood at the River Jordan and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth, and now his cousin, the forerunner, the one like Elijah, is not even sure because now he's in a prison and the gospel doesn't seem real. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you really the one? Or do we need to start looking for somebody else? And Jesus says, you go back and tell John. The poor are having the gospel preached to them, and the lame are leaping. When the gospel is preached, when the Messiah is present, the lame will leap. And look at verse 8, and with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple. Look at that. He had never been allowed to enter the temple before because he was lame. He had been in the court of Gentiles, and now imagine the momentous moment when he actually goes into the temple. And with him walking and leaping and praising God, and all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they're all going, isn't that the fellow who's always there? Isn't that the one by the beautiful gate who begs? And how is it that he's now walking and leaping? We've seen him for decades. He has never moved like that. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, you need to know that the miracles in Acts are like the miracles in the Gospels. The miracles in the Gospels and the miracles in Acts are a forerunner to the preaching of the truth. They exist so people will say, what's this about? And then Peter can stand up and say, here it is. And he gives them the six things I gave you, the apostles' theology. 
So the purpose of the miracle is, in fact, John's gospel calls them signs or semaion. It's the idea of pointing to something beyond itself. And so Peter takes the opportunity to preach, and here we go, Peter's second sermon. If you have headlines in your Bible, verse 11 and chapter 3, it probably says Peter's second sermon. And so does this second sermon sound like that first sermon? Does it have those six elements that I told you are the apostles' theology that you need to hang your hat on as central even before the Gospels? Well, let's look and see. And while he was clinging to Peter and John, that's the man, all the people ran together, the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. When Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? And why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety, we had made him walk? Now, here's the difference. In fact, the healing the healings and miracles that take place in Acts. In fact, he made an allusion over there in chapter 2 that there were a lot of wonders happening, that there were miraculous things that were happening there because the apostles were present. Look at chapter 2, verse 43. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs. So like the Gospels, this early church, the apostles, like Jesus, were doing wonders and signs. The wonders and signs point to the opportunity to proclaim the truth about the Gospel. And, but here's the difference. Here's the difference between the wonders and signs in the Gospels and the wonders and signs in the Acts of the Apostles. The wonders and signs in the Gospels are done by Jesus primarily, and he does them by his own authority. And the wonders and signs that happened in the Acts of the Apostles and beyond happened by the apostles claiming the name of Jesus. He can't, Peter can't do anything by his own name. John can't do anything by his own name. Jesus just said, arise and walk. Peter had to say, in the name of Jesus, the Nazarene walk. You see the difference? Jesus was the Christ. He just said, walk or rise or Come forth. But Peter has to say, not by my power, but in the name of Jesus, the Nazarene, the Christ, walk. Well, he begins to preach. The God of Abraham, Isaac, verse 13, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disown the holy righteous one and ask for a murderer to be granted to you. You remember Barabbas. And put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact of which we are witnesses. The primary role of the apostle was to be a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. We saw it with our own eyes. This Jesus that you crucified. On the basis of faith in his name, the name of Jesus, which strengthened this man whom you see and know. You know the man. You saw him there. And faith which comes through him has given him his perfect health in the presence of you all. Now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of prophets that his Christ should, be, should suffer, he has fulfilled. 
So far, you already see two of these elements of the apostles' theology. Right here, he says, this is the fulfillment of the prophets. Look at verse 18. God announced these things beforehand through the mouths of prophets. Well, that's number one, isn't it? Fulfillment. And number two is in verse 18 as well, deliverance. His Christ should suffer, he has fulfilled. Deliverance means God is acting in the story of Jesus, especially in his crucifixion and resurrection, in such a way as to accomplish our salvation. So right there in verse 18, you have two of the key elements of the apostles' theology. And then you remember number six, the word is repent. Look at verse 19. How does it begin in your translation? Repent, therefore, and return. Given the fact that this is the fulfillment of the prophets and God has acted in the story of Jesus, you need to repent and return from your sins to be wiped away. You know, times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. He may send Jesus, the Christ appointed to you. There's number five, that he's going to return. Whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things which God spoke of by the mouth of his holy prophets from the ancient times. We're back to number one again, fulfillment. Moses said... Now, remember the image of Jesus as the second Moses, the second liberator, and the Old Testament was the key event. And the Old Testament, the key event is the exodus, the freedom from Egypt. And the New Testament, the key event is exodus or liberation from sin and death through the second Moses, Jesus. So verse 22, Moses said, the Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. It shall be that every soul that does not heed the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets, not just Moses, have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward. Now Samuel anointed who is king? David. Who utters the ultimate fulfillment of the line of David? Christ. It is you who are the sons of the prophets. Now, they're not of the prophetic guild like they're the line of prophets, but rather they are inheritors of the truth of the prophets and of the covenant of the prophets, which God made with your father, saying, Abraham, and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Don't you love that Genesis passage? In you, Israel, all the sons of earth are to be blessed. That's what Israel was to do. They were not to be a people of privilege. They were to be a people to bless all peoples. Beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the uttermost part of the earth in Jesus descendant of Abraham, all humanity, all nations of the earth all should be blessed. Well, if you preach that well and that strong, you're going to get arrested. And that's what happens. And the authorities are about to show up, are about to have an arrest. And well, some bad things are going to happen to Peter and John. You'll just have to come back, figure that out next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this powerful chapter preached by the 
Prince of Apostles, about our Jesus. May we know his hope. May we, too, experience the power of the resurrection. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.